Okay. Uh, good evening, everybody, and uh, welcome to the LSE um, and to this public lecture hosted by the Department of Government. Um, my name is Jonathan Hopkin. I'm, the, I'm an Associate Professor of Comparative Politics in the Government Department, and I'll be chairing uh, this talk. And it's a great pleasure for me to be able to introduce our speaker tonight, Dr. Brian Klass, uh, who's a fellow in comparative politics in the government department, uh, been a colleague of ours since uh, 2015. Um, he uh, has his DPhil from Oxford University, his BA from Carlton College, Minnesota. His research uh, focuses on global democracy, democratic transitions, political violence, and volatility, and rigged elections, and now, more recently, uh, Donald Trump and the American presidency. Um, you might be able to see the connection between uh, the, the, the kind of trajectory that Brian has been on here. He's also a former U.S. campaign advisor, and he's a political analysis. He's done a lot of media work. He has a pretty impressive 125,000 Twitter followers, uh, <laughs> I noticed enviously today. Um, and he's the author of, uh, well, actually, by now, three books. So uh, The Despot's Accomplice, his first book, how the West is Aid in Abetting the Decline of Democracy, which was published last year or the year before by, by Hearst and Oxford University Press in the U.S. He's also the co-author of a forthcoming book uh, called How to Rig an Election, uh, co-authored with Nick Cheeseman. And tonight he's presenting his new book. He's uh, incredibly prolific for such a, a, a young guy, uh, The Despot's Apprentice, Donald Trump's Attack on Democracy. Um, so you can see how uh, the research that Brian did in his PhD on uh, U.S. foreign policy and its effects on democracy around the world generally, uh, nefarious effects in many ways, uh, has merged seamlessly into an analysis of the American presidency and hence the title of his uh, current book, uh, The Despot's Apprentice. You can see it, it, fit, it fits neatly with the previous work. So, I'm really looking forward to uh, hearing Brian talk. He's going to talk for about 40 minutes or so. Does that sound about right? And then we're going to have uh, plenty of time for questions. After uh, uh, the event, there is going to be a book signing uh, just outside here. So, Brian will be able to sign copies of the book. Um, there is also going to be a podcast. There's also live streaming. Welcome to those of you following um, uh, the live streaming. And there's also going to be a podcast on the LSE uh, events site. And if you want to tweet about this and communicate with Brian's 125,000 followers, uh, the hashtag is uh, LSE Trump. I should also mention that it is Rag Week at LSE, and there'll be a collection outside the lecture theater after the event uh, um, for War Child. So um, it would be great if you could donate to that too. So um, that's enough from me. Um, really looking forward to hearing what Brian's got to say about the state of American democracy, which I think a lot of us have been thinking about a lot over the last year or so. So please join me in welcoming Brian Klaas. Thank you very much, Jonathan, for that uh, very kind introduction. It could never happen in America, right? That's what we all like to think. Now. I was in Belarus uh, a couple years ago, and I interviewed this man, Mikolai Statkevich, who is a presidential candidate and opposition figure in what is often known as the last dictatorship in Europe. And when Statkevich tried to hold a peaceful presidential rally, uh, thugs from the regime emerged from the darkness, uh, started to beat him with iron rods, put a bag over his head, threw him into a van, and drove around for a while without telling him where he was going. 
And, you know, he, his mind was racing. He was worried he was going to be killed or shot. Would he ever see his family again? And this is standard behavior in a lot of authoritarian regimes around the world that face political opponents. And so when I interviewed him, I asked him all about authoritarianism and democracy. But something that he said at the time that I didn't think of much then, but now has haunted me for the last two years, was he looked straight into my eyes and said, never take democracy for granted. You don't realize how lucky you are, and you won't realize what you've got until it's too late. And that's because Belarus had what seemed to be a fledgling democracy that was on the up and up after the Soviet Union collapsed, and now it is a dictatorship. Now, we have uh, a, a moment in the United States that is changing rapidly. As you have been bombarded with news for the last two years uh, in, in this country, around the world, and I used to work in American politics. I used to work, uh, before I got my PhD, I worked in uh, campaign advising. And to be honest, after the candidate that I, that I worked for won, he became the governor of Minnesota, I had this choice. I could go work for him. But I decided that I would actually leave U.S. politics and start to study authoritarianism, which is what I was really interested in. And there wasn't much of that in the United States at the time. And uh, I thought U.S. politics was sort of boring. It just all worked, right? So I decided to leave the U.S. politics uh, system and, and that sort of career. And I went off and I started to study despots, authoritarian regimes. So I did field research in addition to Belarus in places like Madagascar and Tunisia and Thailand and uh, Ivory Coast and Zambia. And you know, I, I started to learn a pattern of authoritarianism that existed. And in those places, I saw some really, really horrific things. Right? I mean, I saw and interviewed torture victims who were suspended from iron rods for days without food or water. I saw children scrounging through trash piles for morsels of food. And that is why I am very clear that despite the books titled The Despot's Apprentice, Donald Trump's Attack on Democracy, I'm very clear that Donald Trump is not a despot. Because that saying that he is is alarmist hyperbole that diminishes the suffering that happens under genuine authoritarianism. That being said, he is what I call a despot's apprentice. And not just because he used to host the show The Apprentice but also because he's mimicking authoritarian tactics that other leaders around the world use to govern their countries in authoritarian strategies. And those are a threat to democracy, not just in the United States, but also around the world. And that's why today I'm going to argue that Trump is a wannabe despot. And that over time, his authoritarian impulses and instincts can do serious damage to democracy at, in the US and abroad. Now, when I talk about this, uh, and I chronicle the different ways he, he behaves like a despot, um, keep in mind that I would classify, I think Trump supporters would very strongly disagree with me, I would classify my book as nonpartisan. Nonpartisan 2015 is probably more accurate, because we used to all agree on the things that I'm talking about. Um, and that's why throughout the, the book I use what, is what I call the McCain-Romney test, where I don't end up criticizing anything that John McCain or Mitt Romney would have done. In other words, I don't talk about tax policy or health care policy, the things that should divide people in a healthy democratic society. I simply talk about things where there are genuine violations of democratic norms and democratic institutions. Now, there are two main factors when you try to determine whether a democracy succumbs to despotism and a despot rises in a democratic system. The first one is the person themselves, right? If they're committed to democracy, that's not really going to be a problem. If they're not, it is a problem. Then the second factor is the system that they uh, rule in, right? the institutions around them. Thankfully, the US has pretty robust institutions. That being said, they're not perfect. And so while they're constraining Trump, 
There is serious damage that is being done every day he's in office by shifting the characteristics of American democracy towards authoritarianism. Now, I think about democracy like a sandcastle. You start with this sort of bit of sand, and you start to build it up, and eventually over time it takes an institutional shape and starts to look like something. You build up democratic norms that become the walls of the sandcastle. And over decades and decades and decades of hard work, you can build it into something that's a much more impressive sandcastle, right? But sandcastles are still fragile, just like democracy is still fragile. And if you have enough authoritarian wave after wave after wave, even the strongest sandcastles can be eroded and succumb to that authoritarian wave. And that's what I think is slowly but surely happening in the United States. So what I'm basically talking about here with these wave after wave after wave is what I call in the book creeping authoritarianism, which is a gradual change where democratic norms are eroded and authoritarianism, authoritarianism slowly takes root, right? Where things that were previously unacceptable become accepted and where people tend to behave in ways that they never would have behaved in a few years ago, right? And we're seeing this happen as Trump is changing the ways that the Republican Party acts, changing the ways that institutions act in the United States. And in this talk, I'm going to outline six main ways that Trump is engaging in creeping authoritarianism and weakening the democratic sandcastle in the United States. So the first one is what I call doublethink. And this is Trump's abuse of the truth for his own cult of personality. Now, George Orwell uh, in 1984 talks a lot about this, and one thing that Orwell was really right about when it comes to authoritarian rule is that it requires the politicization of truth and for people to, to believe something simply based on who says it rather than well, whether it's objectively true. And that's why you have in authoritarian regimes around the world, this tactic is extremely, extremely common, attacking the truth because it is a challenge to the leader themselves. So when I did field work in Zambia, for example, I interviewed uh, many people about a coup that had happened, a coup attempt that had happened in the late 1990s. And the coup attempt you know, was quashed reasonably quickly, but the government's narrative was that the coup plotter was drunk. Right? It was a drunken idiot who decided to overthrow the government and you know, went to the radio station and tried to announce that he had taken over. Now, when I interviewed the person who was held at gunpoint by the coup plotter, this was not true. They said that the person had asked for tea and he was completely sober and lucid. But you can see why they would say this guy was drunk, right? Because all of a sudden it discredits the idea that there's genuine opposition to the regime and that there was actually a real coup plot engaged in, right? And, and, and so you have this happen all the time. This is just one small example. In North Korea, the cult of personality is a bit more extreme, right? There's been, throughout the Kim dynasty, a huge number of obviously untrue things said about the Kim dynasty to enhance the cult of personality of the ruling class. Now, there are 34,000 statues of the Kim dynasty in North Korea. Kim Jong-il, uh, the current uh, dictator's father, uh, was allegedly the inventor of the hamburger, which he called double bread with meat. He also was allegedly the person who wrote 1,500 books in his lifetime, which is averaging one about every nine days uh, of his adult life. And also he composed six operas. Now, none of these things are actually true, but it goes a long way in the cult of personality. Kim Jong-un, by the way, not to be outdone, has uh, claimed that he learned how to drive a car when he was three. Um, now, Donald Trump lies all the time. And this is not an exaggeration or a partisan statement. This is an objective fact. And it set the tone of his presidency that the first press conference held on January 21st of last year 
was Sean Spicer coming out to the White House press room and saying that Donald Trump's inauguration was the most well-attended inauguration in history, period. Right? Now, this photo on the left is Barack Obama's 2009 inauguration, split down the middle in the exact same spot with Donald Trump's 2017 inauguration. Right? This is exactly what Big Brother is talking about in 1984. Don't believe your eyes. Right? It is completely obvious that there are fewer people in this, and yes, the first act of the new White House was to point to this effectively and say, there are more people here. Right? And by the way, as an aside, the Washington Post conducted a survey with a, a, a focus group with Trump voters and had the two f images up by, side by side labeled, and 15% of Trump voters said there are more people in that photo. <laughs> um, so you know, there's a real aspect of politicization of truth that is happening, and that's very dangerous. But it's also the fact that there is, you know, uh, well, so what I, want, what I wanted to talk about when, I, when we talk about Donald Trump's lies is why do they happen? So this one, I would say, I classify as what I call little man lies. And I, what I mean by that is that they're all about Trump's ego, right? He's a, he's a small person who cannot handle uh, bruises to his ego. So he lies about inauguration crowd size, which honestly, if he had said nothing about it, nobody would have cared. But instead, you know, he fixates on it. This is why, by the way, he has tweeted 256 times about crowd size and three times about human rights. Um, now, there are also big brother lies with the Trump administration. Big brother lies are insidious strategic lies aimed at a specific goal. So this one is where he says, in addition to winning the Electoral College in a landslide, which is false, it was the 46th largest landslide in US history, uh, I won the popular vote if you deduct the millions of people who voted illegally. That is also completely false. And in fact, the most credible studies of voter fraud in the US found 31 cases out of 1 billion ballots since 2000. It is extremely, extremely rare because the punishment is severe. And by the way, if you're an illegal immigrant, the last thing you want to do is to try to flag up that you exist to the government by going to the polls, right? I mean, it's completely nonsensical. But Trump says this, or his claim that he often repeats that the Democrats invented the Russia investigation as an excuse for losing the election. The FBI opened the Russia investigation in July of 2016, months before the election, right? There's a strategic reason why he's lying about these things, though. Now, the Washington Post has tried to chronicle how often this happens. 2,140 false or misleading claims in the first year. That is an average of 5.86 false or misleading claims a day. Now, if you want to take a very strict definition of the word lie, where you actually know that something is false, and you are clearly, clearly aware of that, the fact that it's false, and you still lie, there's a much stricter definition the New York Times has used, showing lies between Obama and Trump, right? I mean, politicians do lie, we know this. But tr Obama has had 18, had 18 demonstrable lies over eight years. Trump in the first 10 months had 103, which means that he had six times as many in his first 10 months as Obama did in eight years of his presidency. This isn't something where it's a fluke. It is a, it is a feature of Trumpism, and it is a feature of his presidency that's really, really insidious, because at the point where politicized truth creeps into the system, partisans of Trump don't care about objective truth. They just care about the fact that they like Trump, and therefore his version is what they want to believe. In a democracy, that is toxic. If you want creeping authoritarianism, it's a huge gift. Now, what is the biggest barrier to politicized truth? If you want to do it, what stops it from happening? Well, the answer is the press. And that's why the second feature of Trumpism that is about creeping authoritarianism is his constant attacks on the press, right? He has called them 
uh, not just fake news, but the enemy of the people, not just in a speech, but also in a tweet, right? The fake news media is not, not my enemy, it's the enemy of the American people. That phrase comes up a few times in Trump's first year, and if you want to find a historical parallel, you don't look in the United States. You look at Mao, Stalin, and Chavez, who used that term for a very specific reason, to try to paint the people with the leader and the press as their enemy. Now, in addition to that, Trump has talked about uh, what he says, opening up libel laws. In other words, the idea that we can more easily sue the press and cost them a huge amount of money with uh, frivolous lawsuits. Now, the United States already has libel laws. If you knowingly defame someone in print, it is illegal, right? So the only thing that you could imagine him wanting to change is to be able to sue people for saying things he doesn't like, which is extremely authoritarian, obviously. Uh, in addition to that, he has called the press a stain on America. That is not something that a democratically inclined person would ever say because the, the press is a pillar of democracy. Now, in addition to this, some things that may not have made international news but are indicative of the fact that there is this massive consequence to Trump's anti-press uh, attacks. So last year, uh, there was a shooting where the, a newspaper in Kentucky was shot at. Uh, nobody was killed, thankfully, and no one was in the room that got shot. But somebody took a gun and shot at a newspaper, right? That's dangerous. In addition to that, last year, uh, the man on the left, who's a reporter for The Guardian, uh, was asking the man on the right, Greg Gianfort, a question about a health care bill. Right? It's a pretty normal thing to do. Uh, Greg Gianfort's response to this was to body slam uh, Ben Jacobs, the reporter, uh, physically assault him, break his glasses. When confronted about it, he lied and said he didn't do it. They produced a recording that showed he did, at which point he was then arrested, pleaded guilty to uh, assault, was continually endorsed by Donald Trump throughout this process. Then there was a special election that was held, and Greg Gianfort was elected and became Montana's congressman with Trump's full support, right? This is a person who literally physically attacked and assaulted a journalist. There's a mugshot of him having pled guilty to physical assault of a journalist, and he is one of the 435 members of the United States House of Representatives with no consequence. Now, in addition to this, some of the more publicized things that have happened the CNN video tweet, where Trump tweeted a video of him uh, attacking the likeness of CNN's logo, right, uh, from when he previously was on a wrestling show. In addition to this, there was the tweet that Trump uh, retweeted of a tr the Trump train hitting a CNN reporter. Nothing can stop the Trump train. Well, this matters. And two days ago, there was a plot to kill CNN journalists where the person said they had a, a stockpile of weapons, and that they were going to kill the fake news journalists and slaughter them. Thankfully, the, what would have been a domestic terror attack was stopped by law enforcement, but the president's words matter, and this culture of attacks on the press matters too, because even if this doesn't happen, which I, I fear it really will, I mean, I think it's a matter of time before even uh, you know, an actual attack happens, um, there's still a lot of surveys that show a huge loss of trust in the press among Trump supporters, right? Other people have more trust in the press, thankfully. But among about a third of the United States population, anything that's a mainstream source of media is simply not viewed as credible in their minds. That is something that's going to be very difficult to repair over time. If you take the Sandcastle analogy, it's easy to wipe it away, and Trump has done so in a year among his supporters. It's going to be very difficult to rebuild uh, that damage. 
And I think that's where we need to take these attacks on the press as being serious, right? Now, additionally, I think it's important to think about with creeping authoritarianism, the first time I heard, I imagine this may have been the same for you, the first time I heard him call critical reporting fake news, I was shocked. But now it is daily, right? I mean, it is almost every single day that he says fake news about something that is simply a true report that is credible, uh, and yet, you know, he's trying to discredit it. He said at one point, all negative polls are fake news, right? That's not about the integrity of the polls. It's just the positive polls are all real in Trump's book, right? Uh, same with the unemployment numbers. And this is something where, you know, it's a really, really insidious feature of Trumpism that will do damage to democracy and it does have serious parallels with despotic strategies because at the point where truth and the press are politicized and you only believe what you want to believe, uh, democracy built on compromise and informed consent becomes extremely difficult, if not impossible. Now, we also have other aspects of Trump uh, that are authoritarian, and this third one is what I call divide and rule tactics, which is a common feature of authoritarian regimes where they uh, attack and denigrate minorities, scapegoat uh, minority groups, as a way to deflect blame and also whip up xenophobic nationalist fervor on behalf of the majority group. Now, Donald Trump's first appearance in what he calls the failing New York Times was in 1973 when a story was written about him uh, not being willing to rent uh, his apartments to black people. Right? So this is the first appearance that Trump has in this major national newspaper. It presages decades of racist behavior. And it's why, in spite of the fact that it is very uncomfortable to say these things with truth or with race, I have been willing to say Donald Trump is a liar and Donald Trump is a racist. And, the, the, you know, I am, it's a very huge claim to say that about the President of the United States. But when you have mountains of evidence, as I'll get to with the race stuff in a second, uh, it's really difficult to just ignore this. Now, in addition to the, there's, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that I talk about in the 90s. Um, but in the 2000s, I mean, this isn't like it's some historical thing. In the 2000s, when Trump was running The Apprentice, he tried to convince the producers to make it black people versus white people. Right? Now, they had the sense not to do that, but uh, this was his idea, and he wanted to see sort of who would prevail in a, in a black versus white battle. You also have uh, the fact that Donald Trump is the person who mainstreamed the racist lie about Barack Obama, that he was born in Kenya and is a secret Muslim. Um, and you know, this is you know, one of the tweets from 2012 at the point where he was really whipping this up. An extremely credible source has called my office and told me that Barack Obama's birth certificate is a fraud. Now, this is not true. But consistently in polls among Republicans still today, usually in the polls, between 40 and 60% of self-identifying Republicans still say they believe Barack Obama was born in Kenya and may be a secret Muslim, right? So it, it lingers beyond uh, you know, the, the initial claim. And, and Trump, you know, his real rise to political stardom in recent times was this claim of birtherism. In addition to that, you have Charlottesville, which happened last year and last August, right? You have uh, neo-Nazis and the Klan marching through an American city, uh, screaming things like, Jews will not replace us, and blood and soil, um, and then ultimately committing a domestic terror attack that left one woman dead. Now, Trump decided to say that the people on the left were very fine people. Uh, it was his quote, you know, there's many fine people there. At the same time that he called... Uh, the, the black athletes who are protesting police violence in the United States, sons of bitches. Now, you know, this is something that's really striking as an authoritarian aspect because 
the right, uh, the, the, the football players, there's not a more perfect foil for an authoritarian than somebody protesting the image of the nation, right? Protesting the flag. And that was really useful. Trump tweeted almost, I think it was 19 times in 18 days in early September, shortly after Charlottesville, um, about these players, right, who happen to be minorities, and, uh, and, and talked about how they need to respect the flag. Now, the irony of this is that he had no problem with people who were flying the flags of the militaries that the United States defeated in war and were fascist, right? But the person who's trying to fight for social justice but happens to be black is a son of, bi- a, son of a bitch. Now, you know, I think this is something that we really need to take seriously, and it's not just you know, a fluke. It is a feature of Trumpism. Now, the divide-and-rule tactics are something that, uh, again, even if you believe that some of the institutions are constraining Trump, there's still the harsh reality that this is not going to go away, right? He has made it okay to say some of these things. And you have even over in this country Trump retweeting Britain First, right? A neo-fascist hate group. And the irony of those tweets was that they were taken down not because Trump apologized or thought that they were unacceptable, but because they violated Twitter's terms of service for being fascist, right? And the President of the United States had them removed from his feed because Twitter deemed it was unacceptable as opposed to him deeming it unacceptable. Again, I think that's a really important thing we need to pay attention to and not simply say, you know, he's a bumbling idiot, it doesn't matter, because there are tens of millions of people who are watching this behavior who now think it's acceptable. And that's not going to go away if Trump loses in 2020 or is uh, removed from office in some way before that or if he uh, spends another seven years in office after being reelected. The next angle of this is uh, politicizing rule of law. So in every country that I've studied, this is an extremely important precursor to authoritarian rule, especially if you're chipping away at democracy. And what it requires is to, to try to convince people that any rule of law, any law enforcement, etc., is a political weapon, right? And that it's about, you use it against your enemies and you use it to protect your allies. This is, a, this is something that all authoritarian states have, right? The rule of law is not impartial in any authoritarian state. Uh, certainly, you know, Putin is not going to be subject to the rule of law in Russia the same way that an opposition leader would be, right? It's used as a weapon to punish people who stand up to the regime and to reward people who stand with the despot. Now, there are echoes of this in the United States. All throughout 2016, the chance of lock her up permeated Trump rallies, despite the fact that the FBI had cleared Hillary Clinton of criminal wrongdoing, right? Now, Trump continues to talk about this, jailing Hillary Clinton, another thing that was shocking the first time it was said and now has become commonplace. A couple weeks ago, he called to jail one of her aides with no criminal evidence whatsoever. I mean, what democratic state in the Western world can you think of where a president calls to jail someone with no indictment and no evidence? It doesn't exist except for in the United States where it happens on a near daily basis. Now, this is something where another extremely important aspect of Trump's corrosive effect on democracy is that he's broken a pact that Democrats and Republicans used to share, which was that there are people in society who have these authoritarian viewpoints. They don't, there are millions of people in every Western society who do not believe that it's important whether the democratic norms or institutions are followed so long as they get their way, right? But Democratic politicians and Republican politicians agreed, we're not going to cater to these people because the system is important. And that's why when in 2008, there was somebody who tried to claim to John McCain that Barack Obama was a secret Muslim born in Kenya, he stopped his rally and corrected them and said, no, that's not true, right? Can you imagine Trump doing that with Lock Her Up 
I mean, he just reveled in the glow of the chance. And so, you know, this is something where uh, the, the, the sort of mainstream or common uh, occurrence of chance to jail opponents is, is something you, you tend to see in authoritarian states, not the, not the United States. But it gets worse than that because there's also the rewards for the political allies. So Sheriff Joe Arpaio in Arizona is the only person that Trump has pardoned. This person uh, is a real piece of work. He has uh, multiple times was basically told cease and desist in his activities because he was racially profiling people in law enforcement where he was only looking at people of Hispanic heritage. Um, he held inmates in what he called Tent City, which he bragged about as his own personal concentration camp. They kept people outside in temperatures that were 142 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 61 degrees Celsius. Uh, sometimes without water. There were people who died in his prisons through negligence. And finally, he was arrested and was about to be sentenced for disobeying a court order to stop racially profiling and using law enforcement as a racial tool. And before the sentencing occurred, Trump pardoned him. Right Now, there have been bad presidential pardons in the past. There's no question about this. Bill Clinton pardoned this guy named Mark Rich uh, on his last day in office in 2000 after Mark Rich, who was clearly a criminal, had donated a bunch of money to Hillary Clinton's Senate campaign and to the Clinton Foundation, etc. So it's just historically wrong to say that presidential pardons that were bad started with Trump. But there's a really important difference that happened with Joe Arpaio, which is that it happened not on the last day of office, as is typically the case, and it happened while the president was under criminal investigation. Right? And the reason that matters is because Trump oversees rule of law in the United States for at least the next three years, probably. Right? And when Mark Rich was pardoned like an hour before Bill Clinton left office, there was no real effect on rule of law after that. I mean, it was a terrible thing, right? But it doesn't have any sort of insidious effect or any sort of signaling effect. Now, with the criminal investigation aspect, what do you think this does to people like Michael Flynn who are facing indictments, right? It's a clear signal that my political allies will be protected. And that pardon power that Trump has could be viewed and is viewed by some legal scholars as witness tampering, right? Where you're trying to send a signal to people who may be integral to this independent criminal investigation that if you don't talk and if you don't flip, I will pardon you, right? Whether that will happen or not, we don't know, but it's clearly improper to be engaging in such political pardons uh, during an independent investigation of Trump himself. Now, on top of this, there's something that's happening right now that's really accelerated in the last few weeks, which is attempts to discredit the Bob Mueller investigation into the, into the Russia uh, scandal. And there are some serious parallels, uh, really astonishingly serious parallels with President Erdogan in Turkey. So in 2013, President Erdogan faced a corruption investigation, credible investigation about corrupt dealings of the Turkish government. Now, what did he do? He wanted to discredit it, obviously. And, and Erdogan, you know, he rules over a much weaker institutional state, so he had more latitude. Well, he started by calling the, the uh, investigation a witch hunt. He referred to it as a witch hunt multiple times. He, then he sent out other people to talk about it being a witch hunt. He said it was a plot of the deep state against Erdogan by his enemies. He said that they should, uh, he said, well, then the next thing he did was he fired all the prosecutors who were involved in the investigation, right? Sending a clear signal that it will be political career suicide if you go down the road of this investigation. Then he said the real focus of the investigation should be his opponent. And then finally he called for a purge. Now, let's see if any of this sounds remotely familiar. We have the witch hunt, which Trump has tweeted about repeatedly, called it a witch hunt, said this is the single greatest witch hunt in American political history. 
the deep state. This is, turn on Fox News right now, uh, literally today, there will be discussions of the deep state plots, the coup attempts against President Trump, they call it, right? This is Newt Gingrich on the right and Sean Hannity, one of the main political commentators who hosts a, a show on Fox News. Then you have Trump firing James Comey, one of the people who was investigating him and admitting to Lester Holt in this interview that he did so because of the investigation on live television, right? Which is pretty improper to fire someone investigating you because they're investigating you. That's not what happens in democracies. Then after that, he started calling for the real investigation to go against the Democrats and Hillary Clinton. When will the fake media ask about the Dems dealing with Russia and why the DNC wouldn't allow the FBI to check their server or investigate? Right? And then repeated tweets about jailing and, and investigating Hillary Clinton. And then finally, last but not least, oh, the, pur the purge of the deep state, purging the deep state, just to add the icing on the cake. We have some seriously authoritarian discourse that's happening in the United States. This is not healthy, right? And it's, it's something where this is intensifying. There is now uh, on Fox News Today a discussion about a secret society of FBI agents plotting against the government with no, e no evidence given, none whatsoever. But it's pervasive in circles of Fox News and Infowars and other aspects of the right-wing media. Now, we also have the next step. The nepotism, the cronyism, the generals, right? Which are, again, features of authoritarian states. Take your kids to work day. This is my favorite uh, chapter title in the book. Um, now, what could I possibly be referring to? Well, uh, two of the most powerful people in the world are Jared uh, Kushner and Ivanka Trump. And they are senior advisors to the president, despite the fact that they have no qualifications relevant to their jobs. None whatsoever. They have no political experience, no government experience. They're very young. Uh, and, and, you know... Despite the fact that they're around my age, I still, I mean, I don't think I should be the senior advisor to the president, right? So it's a, uh, you know, this, this is something where you'd want to have a seasoned, especially among uh, somebody advising a figure like Trump who himself has no political experience or qualifications, right? Now, surely there's at least the silver lining that they're not in charge of anything important, right? Well, Jared Kushner is in charge of, to name a few, trade, Middle East policy, Israel-Palestine peace, Veterans Administration, solving the op opioid crisis, modernizing technology and data in the federal government, infrastructure, and broadband internet. Not that much stuff. Okay, fair enough. I, I, maybe I'm overblowing it a little bit. Uh, but, you know, he's got some good help, thankfully. So if we look at the opioid crisis, for example, thankfully he's got some seriously seasoned people to help him out with that. Oh, meet the 24-year-old Trump campaign worker appointed to help lead the government's drug policy office. This is the deputy chief of staff for the Office of National Drug Policy. His only qualification post-university was that he worked for the Trump campaign. So he literally graduated from an as, as an undergrad, then went to the Trump campaign, and now is second in command of overseeing the opioid epidemic crisis, which killed 60,000 people last year. Right? We used to agree that you don't just hire people based on cronyism, but now this has just become routine. There was a judge who was appointed who thankfully <laughs> was not confirmed who one of his major qualifications was being a ghost hunter um, and had never, never before uh, participated in an actual case, right? And this was a lifetime appointment that was being considered. Now, aside from the 24-year-old uh, in charge of drug policy, um, a couple years ago, Hurricane Sandy hit the United States in New York and New Jersey. It required a massive federal response, especially with federal housing, right? Housing for people who cannot afford it and have subsidies. Who's the person in charge of that under the Trump administration? The Trump family wedding planner. <laughs> Eric Trump's wedding planner, who has no other qualifications, 
is literally the person who is the top official overseeing federal housing in New York and New Jersey, right? And this is where we, you know, with Trump has basically transformed American hiring into uh, your relations on your bloodlines as opposed to on your resume lines. And this is where we have, you know, again, <laughs> I think this was a nonpartisan statement two years ago to say that that person has no business being in charge of federal housing policy. Now I'm probably viewed as an anti-Trump hack for saying so. Right? And I think that's where we've really gone off the deep end. But in addition to the nepotism and the cronyism, you also have the slew of generals. Now, we have this weird environment where Trump is so reckless and impulsive that many people are celebrating the generals as the people who might rein him in, the responsible figures. But surrounding any other Western leader with generals as their main advisors, their chief of staff, the national security advisor, secretary of defense, which, by the way, the secretary of defense had to get a waiver because he was so recently removed from the military um, to be allowed to be in his position, there used to be a principle that we have a very clear dividing line between civilian control of the government and the military, right? Trump is again blurring that line. And, it's, and, and, and while I am you know, somewhat heartened that people who actually know something about the world, like Jim Mattis or H.R. McMaster, are in the White House, it's breaking a norm that will not, again, go away in 2020. It's not like we're just going to snap out of this and think, no more generals ever. Now it's normal. So why not do it next time, too, right? And the politicization of the military is not far behind this. And I think this is something we also are underestimating the seriousness of it. Now, I'm going to shift gears a little bit from this is this has all been what I've been talking about so far has all been domestic policy. This will be foreign policy. And it's a chapter I have in the book called The Despot's Cheerleader. Um, so Donald Trump is... My, my, my first book, I talk about a lot about how the U.S. had a two-faced relationship with democracy promotion around the world, right? Genuinely supporting democracy sometimes and human rights sometimes, and then cozying up to Saudi Arabia other times. Donald Trump has made American foreign policy consistent, but on the second side, right? Um, and it's hard to find a dictator that he doesn't admire. He called Kim Jong-un a smart cookie. He's praised Vladimir Putin relentlessly. When President Erdogan rigged a referendum to consolidate power last year, most Western leaders condemned it as a power grab. The State Department had harsh words for the rigged referendum. Trump called Erdogan and congratulated him a few hours later, right? Completely out of step. But it matters because if you have the State Department saying this was unacceptable and you have Trump calling you directly and saying, good work, which one do you listen to? You listen to the person who says good work who's in the Oval Office, right? And it incentivizes this behavior. It's not been lost on people. So one example I get into a little bit in the book is, uh, is President Duterte in the Philippines. President Duterte in the, in, the, in the Philippines has got a long history of authoritarian abuses. He, uh, when, there, when he was the mayor of a town called Davao, he uh, witnessed the, or was, was there during the um, rape uh, of an Australian missionary, and he joked about how it was a shame that he didn't have first crack at her. Right? Now, Trump is a big fan of this guy. Um, but in addition to this uh, horrible uh, statement about rape, Duterte has bragged about personally murdering people. He's talked about throwing people out of helicopters. He's talked about extrajudicial killings where he drove around on a motorcycle looking for people to shoot. Um, and then, as president, he has presided over the extrajudicial killings, what normal people would call murder, state-sponsored murder, of s at least 7,000 people dressed up as a drug war, Right? He's also talked about uh, how he would kill journalists. This quote, just because you're a journalist, you're not exempted from assassination. And by the way, uh, 
Duterte and the Philippines in general are the third most dangerous country in the world to be a journalist. It has the highest rate, third highest rate of murders of journalists. How did Trump respond to this? Well, with the journalist aspect, when he visited uh, Manila a couple months ago, there's video of Trump and uh, Duterte talking to each other and joking about how the journalists in the room are all spies. Uh, in addition to this, you have, uh, with the drug war, there was a leaked transcript of a phone call uh, a couple weeks after Trump took office of his relationship with Duterte, where he explicitly endorses the drug war, right? which every international NGO says is extrajudicial killings of thousands of people. And, and I'd highly encourage you to look at some of the reporting the New York Times has done. They have a photo essay on this, which is where it's drawn from. Um, it's horrific. I mean, it's just people being abducted and, and shot without any trial. Trump explicitly said, keep up the good work on the drug war, right? Now, why would he possibly do this? Well, there's two reasons, right? One is that Trump has a bizarre adoration of strongmen. Uh, and, and there's a huge number of strongmen that Trump has endorsed and praised. But the second a answer is more strategic and rational. This is them together at the ASEAN summit a couple months ago. And that is Trump Tower Manila just opened. Right? There is no meaningful divider between Trump's businesses and the presidency. And that means that Trump's wallet is tied to the support of various foreign despots. There are two Trump Towers in Turkey. Right? So when you're trying to figure out why he called and congratulated Erdogan without consulting his State Department, Trump in his own interviews has referred to this as a little conflict of interest he has. Right? Well, it's a massive conflict of interest. And what I point out in, in the book is I say, you know, imagine that in 1940, Roosevelt Tower Berlin and Roosevelt Tower Tokyo existed. World history might have unfolded very differently if the president who presided over that had business interests in a foreign country where there was now a strategic aspect of United States security. Right? And we don't know where the next uh, threat is going to come from, but we do know where the Trump Towers are. And you know, this is something where the lack of divestment uh, is really troubling, and th there's a whole bunch of ethics uh, violations that I go into in more detail, but this aspect, I think, is really important for understanding how U.S. foreign policy may be dictated by what is best for Trump, right? And there are already a lot of stories about how various foreign governments are trying to curry favor with Trump by uh, hosting events and conferences at his hotels or giving him easements related to land around his hotels, etc. Uh, it is unacceptable in a democratic state. Now, this has created a, a situation where, beyond the conflicts of interest, there's a major shift in U.S. foreign policy, uh, what Trump would refer to as America first. Now, I think what's really happening is America first is masking the reality of America alone, where America is becoming isolated and willfully disengaging from global leadership. Now, that's not good <laughs> for democracy around the world. There are basically four forces. I mean, if you think about international relations in the most simple form, if you're talking about places in Africa or Latin America or the Middle East or Southeast Asia, the four powers that can actually make a difference in those places and shape affairs there are the U.S., the EU plus the U.K., uh, Russia, and China. Right? So those four forces. Now, the problem is there's sort of a really bad moment for the U.S. to disengage because the EU is turning inward as well. They're grappling with Brexit. There's the problems of authoritarian populism within the EU, in Hungary and Poland. And so the EU is less equipped to deal with uh, global support for democracy, the same way that the U.S. is willfully ignoring it. And as I said, Trump tweeted about human rights three times. At least one of those times was mocking human rights. Right? Now, what I've seen in my, in my research is 
you know, a lot of places like Belarus or in Thailand, where you've got, say, a military dictatorship in Thailand, the opposition doesn't have a prayer unless there's foreign pressure, right? Because unless there's an actual cost to jailing opponents or torturing them or, you know, controlling the media, why wouldn't they do it? It's the most rational thing in the world to maintain power. And that's why international pressure, pro-democracy pressure, checkered as it may be, flawed as it may be, is still the only real hope a lot of these opposition movements have. And right now they're disengaging. That's why it's no coincidence that we're in the, uh, it's the 12th year of declines of democracy globally, but it's the worst year. The Freedom House report came out four days ago and found that uh, 71 countries moved towards authoritarianism in 2017, right? Partially because of this Trump disengagement effect. And this is absolutely great news for Russia and China who have more ability to shape global affairs. Now, if you are a fan of Russia or China, I guess you could be happy, but if you're a fan of democracy, those governments in Beijing and Moscow are not going to uh, invest in democracy. They're going to invest in hard-nosed economic and security partnerships, whether the country is authoritarian or not. It's also no coincidence, in my opinion, that all of this anti-press rhetoric has coincided with the highest number of journalists being jailed in 2017 in recorded history in the, in the world, right? Now, in Myanmar, you have the Rohingya massacre being uh, you know, perpetrated by the government, what happened when the press started to ask them about it? They said, this is fake news, right? There is a ripple effect, and people are learning from Trump the same way that he is borrowing the tactics from authoritarians abroad, where the number of people who cite fake news anytime there's a human rights report nowadays is, rocket, is skyrocketing. So the question then becomes, where does this leave us, right? So I've painted a, uh, a sort of gloomy picture, right? Um, and it is a gloomy picture, I think. But I look into uh, four futures of democracy uh, as a result of Trump. So four visions of 2020, what I call in the book the ghost of despotism yet to come, playing off uh, a Christmas carol, and the ghost of Christmas yet to come. Um, so the four in order before I get to questions. So the first one is the one that I think is happening and will continue to happen. It's democratic decay. Creeping authoritarianism continues. It doesn't, it's not catastrophic, but it is continually chipping away at the foundations of democracy in ways that make American democracy unrecognizable by 2020. I think that is happening, I think it will continue to happen. The second is uh, the forerunner, which is the idea that Trump is breaking so many democratic norms and normalizing so many authoritarian behaviors that the real danger is a Trump 2.0 who has the charisma of an Obama or a Reagan, but uses the same playbook and makes it popular, without the idiotic tweets, without the, the poor strategy, but with the charisma and execution of a polished politician. And I think that's something we need to be very aware of going into 2020 and beyond. The third is unlikely, but still needs to be talked about, which is American authoritarianism. I am really worried what would happen if a genuine mass casualty terror attack happened under Trump, right? Something worse than September 11th. So I talk about the, uh, the risk of a dirty bomb or something like that going off in a major American city. Trump has talked about creating a register for Muslims uh, in the campaign. He also talked about banning all Muslims from entering the United States. Right? Is it so much of a leap to imagine that if there's a mass casualty attack, that those impulses and instincts would be put into actual practice? When major security crises happen, authoritarian regimes are able to take advantage of them. And so I think that this is something that we need to keep an eye on, even though right now, thankfully, it still seems unlikely. And the fourth scenario is the hopeful one, right? There is maybe two minutes of my talk devoted to hopefulness. Um, and that is what I call the Trump vaccine. Right? And the Trump vaccine is the idea that Trump, because of his 
you know, sort of being a bumbling idiot. Um, he is somebody who is a weakened form of authoritarian populism. And he is exposing the weaknesses in the democratic immune system we have, right? And as a result of that, we have an opportunity to fix them before it's too late. The same way that a vaccine allows the body to fix itself before it actually gets infected with something much more serious. And that's why, you know, one of the points that I make in coming back to, to Mikolai Stokkevich from the beginning is that the United States and, and everyone around the world who lives in a democracy, yeah, I think this message is, is relevant in the UK as well, has a huge democratic privilege that seems invisible to us, right? There are a lot of people around the world who are so envious of the fact that we in this country and the United States have the opportunity to vote, have the opportunity to have a say in politics, have the opportunity to dictate how our lives are governed in a, in a somewhat meaningful way, even if it's flawed. But in 2014, the turnout in the United States midterm elections to, to elect Congress was 36.4%. Right? I mean, there's, there's African elections I've monitored where we would not endorse them because they would be viewed illeg as illegitimate if turnout was that low. In the 2016 election, 75% of people didn't vote in the U.S. presidential primaries, which meant that 6% of Americans voted for Donald Trump in the presidential primaries, and 7% of American adults voted for Hillary Clinton in the presidential primaries. So when people complain about the candidates, three out of four American adults didn't choose the candidates. Then in the general election, Three out of 10 American adults voted for Donald Trump, roughly. Three out of 10 American adults roughly voted for Hillary Clinton. Four out of 10 American adults didn't vote. Apathy beat Trump by 10 points. But Trump is in the White House, and we have to deal with that. So the, the point with the Trump vaccine and the message from Mikolai Stakhevich, and the, the message I'll leave you with, is that you know, this global movement where democracy is in crisis is not one that we are powerless to prevent. It's one where we are absolutely powerful and should be empowered to change it. And so I would encourage all of you listening, you know, whether, whether you're American or not, there are problems with democratic societies that can be fixed, but they require people to get engaged. And I think that when you look at the catastrophe that is happening to American democracy across the pond, you know, there are echoes of, of risk everywhere else. And, and I think it's a, a wake-up call that we should take that Donald Trump is a symptom um, and one that we should really take seriously. And that is why, uh, even though I see him as a major, major threat to democracy in the United States and around the world, I still have this glimmer of hope that we can uh, fix it before it's too late, as Mikolai Stokkevich said. Thank you very much. Hey, thank you, Brian. That was, uh, that was great, depressing, but great. Um, so we have quite a bit of time for questions. Uh, the way this works is we have roving mics, I believe. Yep. Uh, so I'm going to ask people to raise their hands. I'm going to pick people out, not necessarily in any fair order, because uh, I have bad peripheral vision. Uh, I am going to positive, positively discriminate in, in favor of people who are less likely to ask questions in this kind of forum, which is essentially people who don't look much like me. Right? Uh, so if you feel you've been ignored, that might be the reason. Um, and if you get a shot at asking a question, uh, please make it a question. Okay? We've had a great talk tonight. That's the only talk, right? Now we're, <laughs> we're in questions. And we're going to take them in groups of three because that helps us get more questions in. So any takers? Oh, wow. Okay, here we go. Right, so we have a couple there at the back, uh, the blonde woman and the guy in the... I'm colorblind, but I think it's a brownish jacket. 
You two, and the third uh, gentleman with the beard and glasses over here. That narrows it down, not that much. <laughs> and we'll take those three, and then Brian will answer, and you, the rest of you have time to think of questions. So, yeah. Um, my question would be... Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I can hear you. Okay. Um, you said that norms are very important, and um, I was wondering what you think about, I mean, if the world survives Trump, in quotation marks, um, what you think about codifying that into law, which ones of those norms you would prioritize there, and if there are any issues to see with codifying norms in, in sense of over-regulation. Hi. Um, so I just want to ask, is this, do you see this purely as a matter for sort of the American populace to deal with, or is there a place for foreign um, governments and foreign leaders to um, try and check some of Trump's actions? Actually, sorry, could I just, uh, I forgot to ask, could you briefly, very briefly, just say who you are? Um, Max. Max. <laughs> okay. uh, that, that, that's brief. Uh, Gentleman Danda. Uh, my name is George. I came with some of my uh, A-level politics students today and sociology okay. students. Okay. I was wondering if um, Trump has benefited from voter apathy, is compulsory voting an appropriate cure for that in America when libertarianism is strong there? Great. Thanks very much. Brian. Okay, so uh, first I'll take them in order. So the first question about codifying into law. Uh, yes, I think that there is a, an essential part of the norms that need to be codified into law, but you can't do everything. Uh, and I think norms are more, in an ideal world, are actually more elastic and more robust. So examples of things that I would codify. Uh, tax returns should be compulsory to, re to release, right? The, 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 I, I don't, it's a norm that's existed for 45 years with no problems. Um, it should be law um, because we need to know whether somebody is financially beholden uh, to a foreign power or has any sort of shady dealings, which are being investigated now. Uh, another one, I don't believe that you should be able to fire an FBI investigator if they are investigating you, right? So, uh, you know, the U.S. does have a system where a lot of the cabinet members and uh, official, top officials serve at the pleasure of the president. I think there should not be th that uh, latitude if there's an active investigation of your own campaign going on. But, you know... I think if you try to go through history and imagine all the possible violations of democratic norms, you're not gonna, it's, it's like a game of whack-a-mole. You can codify one thing and then somebody comes up with something else. So that's why, you know, what I think is this solution to the problem is political. And, you know, even though I, you know, I think in this situation, it's not about partisan decisions about Republicans or Democrats based on policy, but I would hope to see the biggest landslide in uh, U.S. history for the Democrats in 2018. And only because the Republicans have been complicit in Trump's authoritarian abuses, right? Not, not, not for necessarily, I mean, partisan reasons, you might want to say that's why people vote anyway. But, um, but I think it's important that there's this pushback. Because if you imagine that 36% in 2014 goes to 85%, I mean, I know this will not happen. But imagine that happened, right? And that the, the, the Republicans just wiped out. Authoritarian populism in the U.S. would be dead. It's the end of it, right? And that would mean that the norms are strengthened in much more robust ways. And so I think even though the laws will help, uh, they, they don't solve the problem. And that's why it's up to people to, to really be the, the sort of guardrails that Trump is violating. Um, the second question about foreign governments. It's a great question. So, yeah, I think absolutely European, especially European powers and U.S. allies need to do more. 
I think there's this weird debate, and you know, the, the, the UK has, pointed, has painted itself into a corner with this, where there's less latitude for the UK to push back against Trump because when you've willingly decided to abandon uh, a formal trade alliance with your closest and largest or trade partner, all of a sudden the US becomes more important for economic reasons, right? That's a, a difficulty. That being said, I think people are deluding themselves that they believe they can sort of just flatter Trump and just get on with it and there will be no consequences, right? I mean, one thing that I point out a lot, and this is a, it's a roundabout way, but I think it's answering your question in, in a slightly different way, is you know, most U.S. presidents deal with major international crises not of their own making. And Trump hasn't really had to deal with that yet. If you think about George H.W. Bush, the Berlin Wall collapse shortly after he took office, uh, Clinton had the Rwandan genocide and the Black Hawk Down incident in Somalia, George W. Bush had September 11th, Obama had the financial crisis, Trump is going to have something. And I think, you know, people are believing that, okay, as long as we roll out the red carpet and flatter this person and have the handshake and he doesn't tweet at us, uh, there will be no real consequences. But, you know, if there's no pushback to Trump from allies, it enables him. So I would hope that there are, you know, even if you have to have the strategic calculation, because it is in most countries' interest to have a strong relationship with the U.S., um, on some of the stuff about values, push back harder. And, you know, Theresa May did a bit of that with the Britain First stuff. Not much, right? Uh, this is the President of the United States retweeting a neo-fascist in your own country, and you say you're disappointed? I mean, is that really enough? That's what the Republicans say, too. I mean, I talk about this in the book. There's, like, this like lexicon of words that Republicans can use of disappointment, or I wish he wouldn't have said that. Or it's like, well, you actually have power to stop this. Maybe you should use it. And I think the same is true for Europe. Um, the third thing is compulsory voting. So, yeah, I mean, I debate this one a lot internally because... Uh, the obvious points are there, right? If you force people who are uninformed to vote, then the quality of your democracy can also suffer. Um, that being said, I do wish that voting was much more of a social thing. I talked to an Australian where compulsory voting exists with fines for people who don't vote, and they said they have a barbecue every time they vote, right? It's like a big party. I wish that would happen in Western countries. It would be great, uh, and you'd have higher voting rates, um, especially if it was a national holiday. I think that's another important thing because it's on a Tuesday. A lot of people uh, who work multiple jobs, you know, poor people have a harder time voting. Um, but I wish it wasn't necessary. You know, I mean, it's the thing that I always struggle with pers- on a personal level is like when I go to these countries where you see these horrific things and then you come home and people are complaining about Starbucks queues being too long or something like that. It's just, it's a jarring experience. You can't, like, berate people about this. It's just how life is in the Western world. But there has been this complacency about what democracy is worth, right? I mean, like, there's just, there are people out there who do not have the benefits we have, and we take them for complete granted. And it's one of the things that's the most scary uh, chart that I've seen is Yasha Monk, who's a great scholar of democracy. He's a Harvard lecturer, and he's based in in London now. Um, He, he's found that People born in the 1930s in the Western world, about 75 or 80 percent of them think democracy is essential. Uh, for people who were born in the 1980s, that figures about 30 percent, right? And a lot of people have forgotten the horrors of authoritarian abuses. And so, you know, what I would wish is that we don't need to have compulsory voting. We just have a national discourse that says, look, a lot of people are really upset with what's happening. Let's actually turn out and vote. Um, if that doesn't happen, you know, it's shame on us, but at the same time, uh, compulsory voting, as long as it was decided in a democratic way, I wouldn't have any philosophical obje- objection to it, right? Especially because if, if you, don't, you don't get jailed if you don't do it. It's like a fine. So um, you'd have to think very carefully about how that affects poor people. Um, but beyond that, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, I'm basically of two minds, I'll say, yeah. 
Great, thanks. So let's have another round. Okay, um, so the, the three in the second row, uh, two young ladies there and the chap in the nice tie. Okay, thanks. And just briefly say who you are and where you're from. Hi, um, my name's Selena. I'm from Brazil, and I study media communications. So I, I saw that you mentioned uh, the Washington Post um, New York Times and CNN, and what I was wondering is we don't often see the media acknowledging a problem in itself. So how do you think that this whole fake news thing, because you also mentioned about the truth and who says it, so how, how much do you think that you know, the U.S. media and media in general should rethink its formats and its own credibility in a moment that's in crisis overall. Um, I'm Erin. I'm a former uh, student of the uh, LSE here. Um, firstly, I just wanted to thank you and say it was a really useful analysis and framework to understand some of the trends and tactics of Trumpism. Um, I just wanted to ask you what your thoughts were about the causes behind it. Um, so do you think Trump is some great political strategic thinker who's come up with these trends and tactics to achieve a great, a big aim at the end? And if not him, is it his team around him? Is it Bannon or uh, the, the, his family? Or is he this kind of bumbling idiot and these tactics and trends are some form of like either emotional response or economic response or even something bigger like right-wing structural right. politics? Thank you. Um, hi, I'm Toby. I'm 16, and I came here because Facebook said it was useful, so Facebook never lies. <laughs> but, um, Facebook was right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but um, I was wondering, it was actually quite a similar question in terms of actually why things that were so disqualifying for most presidential candidates in election, why they weren't disqualifying and how we can use that, uh, that information from the past to inform how we don't elect Trumps in the future. Great. Great questions. Thank you very much. Brian. Okay. Uh, some big questions. What do we do about media credibility and why did Trump emerge? Um, okay, I'll do my best. So with media credibility, I think there, uh, I think there are fair criticisms of some media outlets um, in terms of missing stories uh, covering a certain subsection of what is news, right? I mean, in terms of news selection. I think the credibility problem on factual analysis is less convincing to me because and one of the things that people who operate in good faith do is when they make a mistake, they correct it as quickly as possible, and then they, they try to put in place mechanisms to ensure that mistake doesn't happen again. You know, and, and that's why it's so rich that Trump attacks the media, because they actually do that, and he does not. Right? I mean, he continues to lie after he's been called out on lies. If, they, if, the, if, you know, if CNN has a, a false report, they immediately correct it, and they, they draw attention to it. Right? They actually say, we were wrong about this which should be credibility enhancing, but then is instead picked up by Trump supporters as further evidence that they are wrong and fake news, right? Um, I think beyond that question, I think the media didn't cover to an extent uh, the popular anger that does exist at the establishment and the life that exists for rural America. Um, that is a problem, right? I mean, a lot of people do not go out to those places, you know, in West Virginia or Wisconsin, et cetera, and understand what's happening, I think that was a mistake, and I think that was undercovered um, for a very long time. And I'll talk about this a little bit more in the causes of Trump aspect. The other thing that I think is really important is that we have uh, a menu of media that is much, much larger than it used to be. 
And that means that people can self-select into partisan echo chambers, and it's exactly what people are doing. And I, I don't, the problem with this is that there's no silver bullet to this because the source of it, in my opinion, is human nature, which is you know, when the person at the dinner party constantly disagrees with you, you start to dislike them. Right? We like people who agree with us, and we like watching people who agree with us. So um, you know, your friends tend to be people who have similar political views to you, um, we have demographic sorting of where you live, uh, which I'll talk to you about again in, in the causes of Trump. And, and also you have you know, social media rapidly accelerating this. So all of these things are real problems. That being said, I mean, uh, the criticisms of the media as being actually fake news, I don't think it's true. I mean, I think there's, you know, they're reporting credibly sourced stories. Um, and, and one of the richest criticisms of the media is that they use anonymous sources. I mean, the Trump tweet about Barack Obama's birth certificate was about an extremely credible source that called his office, which Trump fabricated. Um, and, and on top of that, these are real people. I mean, they're, they're sourcing, and the, the guidelines they have are multiple sources. There's checks, et cetera. Um, but I do think it's one potential positive about Trump is there is a discourse about this. Um, and, and I think that is important because, yeah, I mean, people need to trust the media. Uh, it's a super important basis of democracy. In terms of causes of Trump, so... <laughs> I'm going to try to be as brief as I can. There's a lot of stuff that happened. Um, if you want to put it into sort of three categories, I think it's basically economics, race, and culture, which is like you know, a lot of stuff. Um, so with economics, you have uh, globalization decimating rural America at the same time that uh, median wages for people stopped going up and inequality soared right, for the last couple decades. So median voters in the United States used to see their average quality of life double about every 25 years from the 30s you know, 25 years later, and then another 25 years after that, and that sort of stopped. Um, and people have not been paying enough attention to this fact, that there's just a lot of people who are really angry at the system because that sort of promise that used to exist that became the American dream is not coming to fruition for a lot of people, right? Uh, and I think that's not, I think that's a real concern. I think that's one of the reasons why Trump uh, was so ascendant, particularly because so many people affiliate the system with Hillary Clinton, Right? I mean, it's the perfect foil if you're running as an anti-establishment candidate to have Hillary Clinton. And what I often say when people ask, why is he still supported by 35% of the public despite all the things he's, he's said, I think there are about 35% of Americans who, in their eyes, Trump will never be more guilty than the system. And as long as he's attacking the system they hate, he's still their hero, right? So they can gloss over everything else. I mean, it's a really important thing to understand Trump. Race, I think there was a major backlash to Obama. I think that, like, the fact that there was a black president was deeply uncomfortable for many people in the United States, and that provoked a racial, racial backlash that Trump exploited with xenophobic nationalism. Uh, I think that's certainly part of the picture, and it's one that should not be underestimated. And then cultural and demographic change, right? I mean, the fact that the United States is becoming less white, again, many people are not okay with that. Um, you know, I certainly do not agree with them, but it's something where there are a lot of people who Trump tapped into that anger where you, know, you always hear talk about globalists and political correctness. These are terms that Trump voters will talk about as denigrating Democrats. What they're basically saying is that it's not okay in American mainstream discourse to say, I don't want a bunch of immigrants in the country. Um, that's, you know, there, there are legitimate reasons why you might want fewer immigrants in, in an economy or whatever that people could have, but that hasn't been part of the national discourse for a long time. And so uh, th there are people who feel you know, th that Trump finally tapped into that anger. Um, so I think those things are, are, are key. And then in terms of whether Trump is a, a genius, uh, 
a very stable genius, as he put it in his own words. Um, <laughs> no, I do not think so. But he is, I think, what, one thing that I think he's legitimately extremely good at is, is messaging. Um, you know, I, I used to work in campaigns. The nicknames he come up, comes up with um, stick to people. That's not something we should celebrate because it's name-calling. I mean, it's not like you don't say this is a great thing that the president is great at name-calling. But he, is, uh, he, he has this amazing ability to cut to the very core weakness of someone and, you know, with an alliterative nickname, destroy them. And that's what he did with um, sloppy Steve Bannon or low-energy Jeb, right? It's like what everyone is thinking about them but won't say. I think the hilarious part about this is that with, with the very stable genius tweet, he accidentally did it to himself. Um, <laughs> because it's exactly what everyone thinks about him uh, in, the, in the opposite. Um, now, the final question, why wasn't he disqualified? So part of this uh, goes back to questions I said before about the establishment and the system and people being okay with him as long as he's railing against the system. The other thing is that you know, Trump is a symptom of a long-term dysfunction in American politics that is born out of something that's happening in most Western societies, which is extreme polarization of electorates. Right? And this is partisan tribalism where you only care about your team, you don't care about the actual substance. It's sort of a, a, you know, a sparring match in politics as opposed to actually what should we do to solve problems, right? Um, and, and I think this is really becoming more common uh, as a result of social media. But, you know, there's, there's also one of the things that I think is worth pointing out here is I went back and I crunched the numbers of the average margin of victory in the 2016 House races, right? So how, 435 separate elections in 2016. The average margin of victory in those races was 37.1%. Right, which is extremely uncompetitive. There were a handful of races that were decided by 5% or less, and I think it was 27 races, something like that, that were decided by 10% or less, out of 435. Now, when you think about what that does to people, both in politics and in the demographic groups that they're in the district, it creates extremism, right? Because, first off, you live in a district full of people who think like you, and then you're represented by a person who has absolutely no incentive to compromise and a huge number of incentives not to compromise. Because if you're going to win 70-30 in the general election, your only real fear is a primary. And that's what that's explains a large, to a large degree why Republicans are backing Trump, because their base can knock them out, right? And especially in a low turnout primary election, a lot of these base people turn out, they say you're not pro-Trump enough, they can lose. If they just get to the ballot on the general election, they will not lose. Um, and part of that is gerrymandering, part of that is demographic sorting, where people move to rural Texas if they think like a rural Texan, and they move to San Francisco if they think like a San Franciscan, right? Um, but that polarization is a really uh, important part of the picture because, I mean, yeah, but Jonathan mentioned the Twitter stuff before. It, it is so ugly. I mean, you know, the, the death threats and the constant uh, abuse that you get if you're a public persona in, uh, on Twitter and the vileness of the debate is just so, so distanced from how people talk to each other. And so that means that, you know, that toxic politics and that toxic partisan tribalism means that people think about politics as a sparring match, as I said, or, or, or a battle and not about productively solving problems. And that's why you look at Trump and you say, all this stuff, well, fine, but he's on my side. And there's a huge number of people that think that way. And I think that's been something where people in the political elite really do not understand how little... Uh, the average person thinks about politics on a daily basis, uh, how much it doesn't affect their lives in, in their own conception of, of the world, and also how they want to feel like they're on the winning team. Uh, and, and I think those things, it's an incomplete answer, but I think it's a lot of what's happening where uh, his, his 
floor of support will probably not dip below, say, 33%. Okay, thanks. Now, uh, so we have a couple of questions um, upstairs and one from down here, uh, here in the second row. Hi there, my name is Ujwal, and I'm from the Political Economy of Late Development Program here at LSE. And my question is, could one of the causes for this polarization of American society be related to the failure of the transmission of information from the intellectual elite in America to the general public? And if so, what are some strategies Americans and young students can take to try to fix this broken transmission system? Thank you. Great questions, by the way. There was another one up here. Yeah. Go ahead. Hi there. Uh, my name's Ali. I'm a barrister and a writer. Um, thank you so much for your talk. It was fantastic um, and depressing. Uh, one, one, the answer you just gave to the previous round of questions was quite enlightening. What you were essentially saying was it was the death of an idea of democracy in the face of the importance of identity these days. Now, this is happening across the world, and we're seeing that happening, for example, in Spain with the Catalan question, and indeed here in the UK with Brexit. The question I have with you is, do you, do you think that it is outside the realms of possibility for something like Trump to happen in the UK? If so, why? And if not, why? Great okay. question. Thank you. And we'll stand down here, yeah. Um, my name's Yasmin. I'm studying uh, conflict studies here. So my question was kind of building off what was asked over there. Um, with the United States being such a kind of hegemonic power, you know, uh, having a permanent seat at the Security Council, what can the international community practically do, not only to kind of condemn them, hold them accountable, but kind counter uh, their actions? I'm thinking of things like, you know, um, the transfer of Jerusalem as the capital of, uh, of Israel, things like that. What can the international community practically do to counter these kind of things? Thanks. Great questions. Uh, difficult questions. Okay, uh, so I'll do them in order again. So, um, yes, I think you're right that the transmission of information from intellectuals to uh, the broader public failed, but I also think that intellectuals failed. Um, so one of the things that I found really striking, I mean, it's not the best career move when you're young to publicly bash your profession, but um, you know, I think one thing that is, is our fault in political science or something that we could have done better is when I did my PhD and I was doing field research in African countries uh, or you know Southeast Asia or whatever, that was a totally normal thing to do, right? It was like totally normal if you're going to study African politics to go off and interview people and ask, you know, what do you think about things? That doesn't happen in the U.S. Right? It doesn't happen in in the U.K. There are not there were not a huge there, there there are some outliers, right? There's some people like Catherine Kramer in the U.S. who spent a lot of time talking in Wisconsin to voters and she predicted the rise of Trump beautifully. Um, but, you know, it was, it was sort of this, this inevitable faith in the power of data to explain exactly what's happening without actually talking to people who are suffering or experiencing declines or hopelessness. Um, there weren't a whole lot of people in the U.K. who were going to factories in Sunderland and talking to people. Um, and so I think, you know, there, there is some onus that needs to be put on the intellectuals themselves. There's also a breakdown in transmission because um, there is... Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, don't want to go too much into the weeds, but there's no, there's no career incentive for political scientists to engage with the public. Um, it's much more about uh, publications uh, that are largely not read by, you know, average people or journalists. Um, and that means that there actually is a disincentive to do public engagement in some ways because it takes your time away from those other things that produce advancement. Uh, that being said, I mean, I think that there is 
a lot of research that's being done that's really important that explains why these things are happening that more people in the disciplines of political science, economics, et cetera, need to be all you know, talking about. Um, and it's one of the great tragedies, I think, of Trumpism is that people believe in the communities that have been left behind that think about intellectuals as sort of the enemy or these you know, elite people in ivory towers that don't care about them. He's, they see him as the champion of them. Now, I mean, a lot of the drivers of the problems that you know, those people suffered, Trump will make worse. Uh, and inequality, the tax bill that just passed is not going to help people who are in rural West Virginia. The opioid crisis is being managed by a 24-year-old, right? And yet those people are thinking he's their champion. So in, in addition to that, there's a lot of research on how the long-term drivers of inequality are going to accelerate from things like artificial intelligence, machine learning, a whole bunch of mechanization. What is Trumpism's tariffs going to do for that? There's no long-term strategy to deal with these economic drivers of people being angry at the system. And so that's the great tragedy where I think there is a role for people to sort of ringing, be ringing the warning bells and saying, look, there's stuff around the corner that's going to be even worse, and you're going to be you're basically doubling down on a system that, that screws you. Um, and, and I think, you know, it's hard for... But at the same time, we have such a climate of anti-intellectualism in the United States that's saying that, you know, trying to tell people that you were duped by Trump uh, is not a winning message. So there has to be a combination of intellectual engagement with people who can actually talk uh, in ways that, are, that, that uh, you know, voters are receptive to. Um, second question about Trump in the UK. Uh, yeah, I've had this conversation a lot of times uh, with, with Brits, and, and I think, you know, there are a lot of people who say, oh, with Brexit we have so many parallels with Trump. I, I was talking to Jonathan before this. I said, you know, I think if an MP, like, physically attacked a journalist, they would be uh, not in Parliament. So I think there are things that are worse uh, in the U.S. Than, than in the U.K. That being said, I think it's naive to believe that somebody who is a more sophisticated and polished version of Trump could not uh, emerge in Western Europe. Right. Certainly in Eastern, I mean, Viktor Orban in Hungary, for example, I mean, there's a lot of parallels with Trumpism there. So I think in, in lots of places in Europe this is possible. Authoritarian populism is, is, is certainly potent in many places. In the UK, you'd have to package it uh, differently, I think. But that's, that's one of the things, you know, I, said, I, I did an interview on the BBC where it was right after, in February, where Trump had just given a sort of normal speech to Congress. He's going to do another sort of normal speech for the State of Union, uh, State of the Union uh, next week. And you know, what I said in that interview was that was the scariest moment I've had uh, with Trump because what happened was he packaged Trumpism like a normal politician and it was well-received, really well-received, right? There's a lot of people who like the, idea, uh, like the ideas that he's packaging and there are a lot of people in Europe who would like the ideas if the sort of hard-nosed xenophobia was packaged slightly differently, right? You can't be so overt um, but there are things that he says and attitudes that he mainstreams, et cetera, that there is an audience for. So I think there, you know, the, the real risk is that that could happen uh, here with somebody more sophisticated. One other quick anecdote that worries me about the, uh, and this relates to the media question, the internationalization of Trump. So I did a lot of television appearances about Trump uh, last year during the, or two years ago during the election campaign. And a lot of the people that they brought on uh, who were voicing the Republican view were like veterans of the Bush administration, veterans of the Reagan administration, McCain's campaign, et cetera. People who did not like Trumpism, um, but were Republicans, right? Then once Trump won, because this was during the primary campaign, so the majority of Republicans in the race were still sort of the Marco Rubios and Jeb Bushes, et cetera. Then after he won, the people who I was all of a sudden uh, put up against in uh, TV 
were like the Breitbart editors who were saying we should ban Muslims from the UK, right? Now, the reason that that's happening is because British media doesn't want to put a pro-Trump, or sorry, an anti-Trump person with another anti-Trump person. It doesn't make for good TV, and it seems, you know, you get all these accusations of BBC bias. So, you know, and, and additionally, I've had moments where I've been debating somebody who's more of a pro-Trump person, and the, the, the producers realize in horror that um, we're about to agree on most things, and they say, tell us what you disagree about, that's what, that's what we'll ask you, right? That's a real problem. Um, and so I think there's an internationalization of mainstreaming Trumpism where, like, imagine Sky News thinking we should have somebody on television who says we should ban Muslims. Two years ago, I mean, that person would have been fired immediately, right? But now it's part of the non-anti-Trump bias. So there's a diffusion effect. And I think that's where, you know, there is worry that I have that as soon as these ideas become part of political culture in Europe, it's, you know, it may happen in a long time, but it's still possible. And one thing I often say to my students, too, is, you know, they sort of say U.S. politics are off the rails. That's true if you just tuned into U.S. politics two years ago. And it has been dysfunctional for a while. But this is really not normal, right? And, and I think it's something that's worth considering. It's like, I didn't think this could happen. Right? I didn't think it could happen in the U.S. As somebody who really understands U.S. politics, it did, right? So I, I think that the, it's, it's a bit naive to think that it's never possible in the U.K., uh, third question about practical um, pushback to Trump. There's not a lot. Uh, this is one of the problems. I think there needs to be more diplomatic pushback uh, from Europe that could really actually embarrass Trump. I mean, one of the things that he cares about the most is the pomp and circumstance, right? So uh, when, you know, he absolutely loved Emmanuel Macron uh, rolling out the red carpet. He loved President Xi making him look like a statesman. Um, and those people are very smart because, you know, Xi effectively rolled him and China is celebrating Trump's uh, ascendancy. And Trump, all he got was like a good photo op, right? So that's very smart diplomatic tactics. But for people who care about the international system, there should be much more pushback as much as possible publicly. It will cost people. Uh, it, it is a risk. I mean, it's a serious risk for Britain to really go against Trump right now. But I think, you know, one of the points that I often make is he's the most unpopular president after one year in office in history. So, you know, you may be damaging a relationship with him, but the American public doesn't like him. And so, and he only represents one branch of Congress. And most of the people in Congress believe in the international order. So one of the points that I think is really worth saying is that, you know, with things like the Iran deal, why isn't Europe being much more aggressive and saying, we need this, and we will fight for it, we will enforce it, and if you try to do this, there will be consequences, because Europe actually, if it banded together, is powerful. Uh, Getting Europe unified is hard, right? Um, but that's something where if there was enough political will and enough people who are willing to say, look, this is a, a long-term problem if we just embrace this guy, um, there could be more pushback. And I think that public embarrassment factor is, is really powerful for Trump. Um, you know, I, I thought John Brickow, uh, the, the Speaker of the House of Commons, <laughs> I ran into him at the local Sainsbury's, and I shook his hand. I, I shook his hand because... He said, as long as I'm Speaker of the House of Commons, this person will not come. That's embarrassing for the U.S. president with the most important and powerful ally to say that to you. Right? It's a public rebuke. And it's admirable. It was something that John Burke got a huge amount of heat for. Right? But I admire that greatly, and I think it was the right thing to do. So I wish more people would do that. Thank you. So we have three minutes left. And um, so should we just take... Um, yeah, three really fast questions and really quick answers. We'll squeeze them in. So right at the back there and two in the front row here. 
super fast. Hi, my name is Hazley. I study at the LSE. Um, you mentioned that one thing that makes some of Trump's egregious statements indefensible is just because he's against the system. Um, I was wondering if you would also see gender playing a role, as Hillary probably could not get away with saying a lot that he does. Thanks. Yeah. Um, down here, or whoever has the mic. Hi, I'm Peter. I'm here. We, we all do uh, masters students here. Um, on the 12th of December, a spokesman from the Kremlin said they were going to take Trump's tweets as official policy statements. Should other governments do the same? <laughs> great, Good great question. question. Yeah. Yeah. Last one. Um, I'm Chris from Wimbledon. Okay. Um, following on from one of the earlier questions is, how much damage do you think Trump can do to the UN? Okay. Great. Brilliant. I'll Thanks. try to be as quick as possible. Yep. The short answer to the gender question is yes, absolutely, and I should have included it in one of the causes. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that misogyny and sexism is a huge part of what was played into. And I think when historians look back at the coverage of Hillary Clinton uh, in the campaign and the false equivalency that was drawn between some of the behaviors Trump exhibited during the campaign and the uh, fixation on Hillary Clinton's uh, comparatively minor transgressions, which I'm you know, not defending, like the email thing was legitimately a mistake. Um, but to equate that with some of the things that Trump was doing was a huge failure of journalism, in my opinion, uh, that only can be explained through sexism and misogyny. Uh, the second thing about uh, Trump's official statements. So uh, we're in a real problem with this. I think the tweets are super dangerous. Um, I'm, I'm of the opinion you have to take them seriously because you cannot simply just imagine that the words of the president don't matter. They absolutely do. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of them are in response to Fox and Friends. Um, honestly, I mean, you, you do an analysis of his most frequent tweeting, it's, it's directly responding to television program, uh, which is dangerous. But, you know, the, the problem is you, have, you sort of have a catch-22. If, if you do take him seriously, then you're constantly running around and trying to figure out what's going on, right, which is a problem, and it increases risk. If you don't take it seriously, what about the one time Trump is serious, right? Uh, and, you know, during the Gulf War in, 19, in the early 1990s, the Saddam Hussein, one of the reasons why he invaded Kuwait was because there were two conflicting statements from the U.S. government. He took the one that he wanted to believe as official policy, invaded, and then the U.S. got into a war, right? And war happens more often through miscalculation than desire to actually have a conflict, especially between countries. So, you know, I think you cannot discount the tweets. You have to follow them. And that is dramatically increasing global risk related to Trump because he is so reckless with what he says. Uh, and then the final aspect, the UN. So uh, the UN is very unpopular among a large part of the United States. Um, I think he can do some damage, but you know, I think what, what, what he's... He, he can try to eliminate funding and things like that for various programs. Um, that being said, with the veto that the US has had, uh, that used to not be something where he would veto things that Europe agreed on. He could do that now. Um, Nikki Haley, who's the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., is not insane. So that's a positive. Um, she's not a, a Trump, you know, diehard Trump person. She, she backs him publicly, et cetera, but I don't think in her heart of hearts she really loves him. So that's positive. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think for the foreseeable future, the U.N. and the U.S. will not be in lockstep, and that means that solving global challenges is going to be ever more difficult. The Paris Climate Accords, I mean, you know, the U.S. is the only non-ratifying partner now. Um, so you know, I think one of the things that I really worry about is that the, the risk has globalized. Whether we like it or not, risk is absolutely globalized, and challenges require global solutions. The U.S. is going to sit on the sidelines. The world is not going to just stop for the next three years, and that's where, you know, 
the UN will be somewhat handicapped. American foreign policy will be uh, detrimental in a lot of ways. And we'll lose three years of potential leadership uh, on problems that are at tipping points like climate change. So anyway, thank you very much. These are excellent questions. Thank you, Brian. <laughs>